0: We sold 500,000 books. We sold millions of dollars worth of books, but the book industry is a rough industry.
1: What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. We have a really special episode today. Luke Skirman is the founder and CEO of Niche.com. You may have recently seen that they raised $6.6 million in a Series B to scale their organization, which is a user-generated database of reviews of schools around the country, K-12, through and universities. This is a company that Luke started from his dorm room in CMU and has been hard at work steering the company from the day he graduated. In this conversation, we talk about recruiting startup talent, both engineering and marketing, in the city of Pittsburgh. We talk about how he generated more than 50 million unique visitors to his website last year and also the climate for raising venture capital. Finally, we cover how Luke played a hand in the start of Thrival Music and Innovation Festival. Longtime listeners of this show will know that not only have I spoken at the last two Thrivals, but have been deeply influenced by that event and the excellent organizers over at Ascender like Kenny Chen, Bobby Zappala and the rest of the Ascender team so this is a really fun interview for me, connects a lot of dots and is a great time capsule with a very, very busy entrepreneur in the city of Pittsburgh so please, please enjoy this conversation with Luke Skirman You're listening to Going Deep with Aaron Watson. First question is the most important one. Is it niche.com or niche.com? So I
0: grew up uh, saying niche, but when we were working on 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 branding the company. We did a lot of user research and we felt like majority of Americana said niche.com. So we were all in on niche.com. We don't, we don't take it personally if you decide to use a different pronunciation, but
1: internally it's, it's niche. Yeah. That was more of a fun one, but uh, you you did do this rebrand in 2013, uh, but this company really started in 2002, uh, originally under the name College Prowler. And upon you graduating from Carnegie Mellon, uh, this was your, your full-time gig and has been now for over 10 years. Talk us through a little bit about what that early iteration looked like and then what led to the eventual rebrand. Sure. So I could go on for hours about this, but
0: I'll, I'll try to be as succinct as I can. But um, so I was born in New York City. Mom and dad didn't want to raise me in Manhattan, they decided to moved to San Francisco, which is a more livable city. So we moved to San Francisco and I'm an only child, mom and dad still live out there. A lot of my cousins, my uncles, whatnot, live on the East Coast. I always wanted to go to college on the East Coast, get that East Coast experience. And I was getting ready to apply to colleges and I realized, Applying to college was a big deal. My parents were going to spend a lot of money. I was going to move 3,000 miles across the country. I was going to be there for four years of my life. It was going to be where I met a lot of friends. It was going to lead to my first job. This was a big decision that was going to have an impact on me for a long time. I quickly realized that. And so I realized I got to Carnegie Mellon. I was very happy there. I was eyes wide open. That being said, some people loved Carnegie Mellon. Some people, they weren't sure they had landed at the right spot. And So my sophomore year in college was the height of the first dot-com boom. All these internet companies were starting. This was 2000. And I said, I want to build an awesome internet company for helping students choosing the right college. Really tell it like it is, kind of insider information. And uh, my professor at the time said, all these internet companies are failing because they can't get big enough fast enough. They don't have enough scale. They're just relying on advertising revenue. And most of them are dying. took that feedback probably too literally, frankly. And we said, okay, we're gonna go generate real revenue. We're gonna go sell physical books, one on Harvard, one on Yale, one on Stanford, like a Cliffs Notes Guide to each individual college, written by the student, for the student, had a, a very specific recipe, and we treat every college the exact same way. And that was the revenue stream from 02 to 07 selling physical books. And we self-published these books. We were one of the first companies in the country to almost rely exclusively on print on demand technology. So we had very little inventory, but we established national distribution, Barnes and Nobles, books a million borders, college bookstores across the country. We sold 500,000 books. We sold millions of dollars worth of books, but the book industry is a rough industry, bad cash flow, bad margins. The content goes out of date quickly, but more importantly than all that, everyone was going online to do all their research. So, um, we then started digitizing all of our content and started charging for paid online subscription access like a WallStreetJournal.com. Most people expect content to be free. They don't really want to pay for content. You're beginning to see some businesses have success with a content model Netflix, Spotify, NewYorkTimes.com is having more success, but it's very, very hard to get people to pay for premium content. So, we, we that was a single, maybe a double. People paid for it, but not a lot of people paid for it. So finally, we made the website free in 2010, and the traffic really began to rise, and we started really monetizing it much better with different contextual partnerships. By 2012, we had 25% market share. of Every high school senior in the United States had an account on our website, and we were ready for more and more colleges to spend their money online, digitally. Even though this is an incredibly important segment, you know, it was a relatively small but lucrative segment. It wasn't moving and innovating that fast, but we felt like we had this incredible recipe of user-generated content, rankings, data, statistics, facts, outcomes. We had the recipe and we now wanted to move into bigger markets. So we had we had the plan and now we wanted to go into new markets. And we owned other domains like City Prowler and School Prowler and whatnot, but at that time it was time to rebrand the company have a bigger vision, and that was the impetus for niche. So in 2013, we rebranded the company. It was a total rebirth. Our favorite definition of niche out of the dictionary is a place, employment, status, or activity for which a person or thing is best fitted. That's literally out of the dictionary, and that's really what we feel like we're doing. So we rebranded, and then we moved into our second market, which was on coverage on all 120,000 K-12 through schools. So every kindergarten, middle school, high school, private, public, charter, parochial, every single k-12 school in the country and then by 2014 with a lot of user research we realized that if you're looking at k-12 schools you were also thinking about moving that the price of a home was correlated to the quality of a school district that schools were very connected to real estate so then we had every city town and neighborhood and suburb in the country by 2014. so that's what we have today every single college every single k-12 school and every single place to live in the country the tech stack on the back end completely modernized along the way. We have all this user generated content and we're kind of like scaling right now. But to answer your question, I know it was a long answer, but there was kind of a moment there where we tried a lot of different things and it was time to kind of rebrand in 13 to go after something bigger and, and a little bit more ambitious.
1: Well, you did a great job of taking a pretty broad question <laughs> and condensing it into a valuable story for the audience. So I thank you for that. And, As we talk about this rebrand in this next chapter for the company, um, you've been at a long time and and there's always kind of a different trajectory or a different path that goes along with raising outside capital, particularly when it's a substantial amount. And just the expectations that come along with that and the vision that you realize reroute to that you partially illustrated by talking about why niche and and how it represented these multiple ideas what i'm really curious about because you're in a seat you know maybe in a san francisco or somewhere that's a pretty common trope but it's it's not happening all over the place in in pittsburgh when you're in this situation where you're going out and you're deciding we're going to raise this amount of money we're going to paint this vision for the company we take on the capital and then we start to go execute with it you know your father was an architect. That's a position where you have to fully realize, fully envision something before a single brick has been laid. And the nature of entrepreneurship is usually something where it's very dynamic and very, at least perceived to be reactive or adaptable moment to moment. How do you think about the course that you chart for your company, both in how you articulate it to a potential investor, and then also internally as you're navigating the ship? Yeah, it's a great question. So, um, in this particular
0: case, because we'd been around, even if it was a slightly different vision, slightly different brand, for better or for worse, that we were being judged on that performance. So, we could have the most ambitious vision in the whole world, but they kept seeing this well, this is what you've done the last 10 years. So, I think there's two ways you can raise capital, okay? One is that you have some metric, it doesn't matter what it is, it can be photo uploads, it can be page views, it can be time someone's looking at your app, it can be anything. Something is growing insanely fast, really fast. Doesn't mean that there's revenue there, but something, some metric that you can point to is growing crazy quickly. Or you're getting to a point where you're getting real revenue, the revenue's growing, and it's, there's a story there where there's, there's, there's the beginnings of something that could be a very compelling business. So in our case, for better or for worse, we were judged on our revenue, not on this rebrand, not on this vision. We were judged on hardcore numbers. Are your numbers growing or not? That is for better or for worse. I could paint this picture till we're blue in the face. Because we had real revenues, because we had a track record, that was the box I was put in and I had to react to that.
1: So you were stuck in that because the business had been around for a while? Yeah. Okay. That makes sense.
0: And so sometimes it's easier to raise money, frankly, when you're just this really new
1: nascent idea and you don't have that that history associated with you. And the investor gets to use more of their imagination yes. as opposed to some sort of financial model yeah. projection. And then all of a sudden,
0: oh, you've done this, you've done this, you've done this the last three years why all of a sudden is it going to go like this? Yeah.
1: So, so that, that is something that you have to be extremely aware of. That's interesting. So you're talking about the way you may have gotten boxed in, but in terms of the strategy that you went about when you decided to fundraise, was there a specific like type of investor that you targeted an area? Like we wanted money from people in a certain place. How did you think about that? Sure. I mean, (laughs) so
0: in 2014, um, I started meeting with some of the highest profile VCs in the country, big firms, top partners, and didn't really get anywhere. Um, these are all West Coast, some East Coast folks had real time. They, they loved our content, loved our market share, loved the user-generated content. But no, n- like kind of, hey, you have this big vision. Why don't you execute it a little bit more and then come back to us and I want to see this thing growing more. So for better or for worse, I felt like a lot of the VCs, the formal VCs, were grading and analyzing the business extremely similarly. A lot of them look at it very, very comparably. So I felt like we were sitting on this giant opportunity, but for better or for worse, the market wasn't ready to react to what we were doing from an investment standpoint in that regard. So then what we did is we started we changed course. And what we did was we we created what's called a PPM, a private placement memorandum. And we set our own terms. This is our business. This is what we think we're worth. This is what you can invest in. So you can be a, a VC. You can be some famous entrepreneur. You could be anybody that was an accredited investor that thought this was a compelling opportunity, that's where we began to go. And we had a lot of success with that getting to, we had some institutional money participate, a good amount, but we had more, we started to get more success with kind of entrepreneur to entrepreneurs. I had a good network of people that had been very successful. They believed in me. They believed in what we were doing. They weren't as stringent on some of the other things that the VCs were. And then as the business continued to execute and continued to perform, then more and more professional money started to want to participate as well. So it it's uh, at the end of the day, the results help you no matter what. If you have great results, it's easier and easier to raise the capital. It's if you don't have great results, it's hard to raise the
1: capital. So what is the execution that is forthcoming for niche? You you talked about these different areas that you want to represent, but what does this money allow you to do? So, we have a big vision, right? I mean, the average and
0: and so in June we're starting to tap into workplaces. So not only schools, colleges, places to live, but then places to work as well. So the average American chooses a school, a college, a place to live and a place to work 29 times in their life. 92 million Americans make one of those four decisions every year. This is a big opportunity and we're trying to go after that. So we have A lot to do from a product standpoint, from an engineering standpoint, and from a sales perspective. Um, So, the bulk of the capital, frankly, is really about growing the team right now. The end of 16, we had 35 full time people. The end of 17, we had 48 full time people. Today, we have 60 full time people. We're probably going to finish the year around 75 people. So, it's coupling the business is growing from a revenue standpoint but you also have to invest in the business ahead of the revenues where you have additional capacity. So we're at a point right now where the business is growing dramatically from headcount and from revenue and from kind of process. There's so much going on right
1: now. Two kind of storylines that get told about Pittsburgh. And I just want to see if you agree with these or not. Number one, it's hard to get a venture firm or someone to invest there because they don't wanna be on a, sit on a board where they have to fly to Pittsburgh. And then also, the as you're building the team here, finding the talent to build these teams, whether it's from the universities or importing people. Sure, let me, let me
0: answer both of those questions. So
1: let's start with the second one first.
0: Um, I don't believe we have an issue here locally on what I call the engineering, the data, the tech, the product, side of the house. I think Pittsburgh is very well stocked on that side of the house. There's some very smart technical product people here. I think Pittsburgh as a region is light related to tech, related to internet, on the offensive side of the house. Sales, marketing, business development, there are not, there's not huge, deep, benches here on the offensive side of the house for companies that are really doing what we're doing. There are not 10 other companies that have these deep benches that have had similar successes. So I think the technical talent with CMU, with Pitt, with all these great engineering companies here, I think the technical talent is here. The offensive side of the house is lighter. Now, That is a challenge. Um, I don't have an easy thing to to point to on the offensive side of the house. You you get a few leaders. They have a network. It's not like Pittsburgh is swimming in crazy deep resources there. I don't believe it is. I feel like there's good resources on the technical side, though. On the first question related to VC and whatnot, I definitely believe that to get a West Coast investor – To come here and really get excited, to sit on board meetings and whatnot, you have to be killing it. You have to be really, really flying high. There's so much good deal flow already in the Bay Area or already in the West Coast, or already in LA or Seattle or Denver or whatnot to come all the way across the country, to sit on a board over here. uh, You have to really be killing it, okay? Like yes, Duolingo's killing it and they have some awesome West Coast investors, Okay, yeah, rightfully so. I mean, app of the whole world, they want app of the year, but that's, um, you know, Avere Systems had some West Coast investors there. That is rare. I think there is East Coast money that is willing to come to Pittsburgh and wants to invest in Pittsburgh and believes in Pittsburgh. Um, you have to have a business that's compelling you have to have a business that still makes sense investors are just not throwing money at things that they don't really believe in all investors are picky the cream rises if you're really strong and you're really good you can always find money i think if you're probably raising under um and if you're based in pittsburgh and you're probably raising under 10 million dollars, it, it has to probably stay on the East Coast. If you're then getting to the point where you're, you're really killing it, okay, and you're now writing, you're looking for 20, 30, 50 million dollar checks, I think that money can come at that point probably from anywhere in the country. But it's not easy to get somebody from New York or from Boston or from DC or for Chicago to come here. But it, it is possible. But you
1: have to still be really doing a great job. Makes sense. With the chart that you've laid out for yourself, is that something where there's like an inevitable nature that you would need a subsequent round in that 10, 20, 50 million dollar range? Or do you still have the flexibility? I I apologize. This is an ignorant question, but like have the flexibility to say we've taken enough money and we're going to go from here. Or does the kind of presumption that comes with some of that money chart that course for you?
0: I would say that what I I try to profess to always have is what I call optionality. And optionality means I don't need to raise more money. I could just, I'm done with raising capital. Optionality could mean that we get acquired and it's time to be part of a bigger organization. Optionality could mean, no, this opportunity is so large and just it's not time to be part of another company. It's not time to just reinvest our cash flows. We need even more money. It's too big of an opportunity and we need even more resources. That's absolutely a possibility. So what you don't want, in my opinion, is a gun to your head. You're bleeding cash, you're hemorrhaging, you're begging for money. And if you don't get it, you're screwed. So you need to be very thoughtful and you need to be very smart about it. But I don't think it's realistic to say, Raising money, we're never going to raise money again. I always have
1: to consider that that's a possibility. Makes sense. So maybe we can talk as we aim towards wrapping up here a little bit just about practical first steps for listeners out there who are maybe more on the novice side from an entrepreneurial standpoint of getting something off the ground. You really like built this brick by brick from very early stage. When you either mentor, Young entrepreneurs or at CMU or through a sender or, or as you go around the scene, what are some of the practical nuggets that you try to make sure that they grasp?
0: Number one, I would say, I know this might sound so elementary, but is follow-up. If someone gives you if someone opens the door, you have to follow up. You have to send that email. You have to call them. You have to get on their calendar. You have to get that coffee. There's this neurosis where people are like, oh, they're so busy and I don't have this big ask and I don't want to waste my one bullet. If you get that card or you get that window, you have to you have to make it happen. Follow up is so key. I can't believe how weak I see people are on follow up. It's It's astonishing to me. You don't have to be the most smart, the most driven, the most brilliant piece, person in the world, but you just have to follow up. Is like eighty percent of it sometimes. Um, so you get to these all these networking events. You go have this lunch. You do this whatever. You have this coffee. You bump into someone. The door slightly ajar, and then you don't follow up. It's just crazy. You have to follow up. Follow up is critical. So that's one. I mean, that's just elementary. But I, I can't. I can't tell you how often I see poor follow up. I think that another thing is that entrepreneurship is so difficult and it takes so much time that the amount of work to do a small company or to do a big company, it's it's you should be aiming as big as you can be aiming because it takes so much work, small or big, it still takes so much out of you that you should be thinking at the very beginning about the market size and about the potential and it's going to dictate everything. That if you're aiming too small from day one, your business is just never going to be that big. You've got to try to think as big as possible.
1: Can you put a tangible example on thinking small or not having the larger wherewithal of a business model maybe that you're saying? Let's start with my business. You know, when I started off,
0: We said, wow, there's 4 million high school seniors. There's 3 million go to graduate from high school every year. 2 million go to college every year. We can sell a lot of books. But how many high school seniors and parents are really buying books related to college every year? You know, I told you we sold 500,000 books. We sold about 100,000 books a year. That's a lot of books in the space. It's just not a giant market. It's just not. Even if you take that away and you don't call it that, there's 2 million people a year choosing a college in the United States. It's not insignificant, but it's not billions of people a month on Facebook or looking at Google or Amazon's impacting. It's still a thousand times smaller than what those companies are going after. Now, all of a sudden, we're, we're, we're helping with schools colleges, places to live, places to work, we're in a much bigger opportunity. And our opportunity now can also scale internationally. We can go into more markets. We can go to nursing homes. We could go into British high schools. We could go into Canadian colleges. Our model now could do anything. So our market size and our potential is limitless now. We have transitioned from this small, tiny, analog book company to the potential to be a completely global company. And that has taken a lot of work to do that over this period of time, but
1: we have gone from a very small market size to an enormous market size. That makes sense. We're gonna wrap up with our last two questions, but before before we do that, you've also been involved, I mentioned with Ascender, the um, incubator and coworking space down the street. And also with the Thrival Innovation and in Music Festival, we, I think we've interviewed almost everyone over there, Bobby, Kenny, Dan, on and on down the list. Talk a little bit about your role in the early stages of that and, and a little bit to listeners who might not have heard those episodes about Thrival.
0: Sure. So so when I graduated from Carnegie Mellon,
1: my CMU network slowly
0: disappeared, and they moved to D.C., Philly, Chicago, New York, San Francisco. A lot of my CMU friends were gone after a couple of years. And there were there's two worlds here in Pittsburgh. At least there were 10 years ago. There was this transient world that was kind of here for school and then move on. And then there were the, the residents that they were hardcore Pittsburghers through and through. And, and the two didn't always mix. And I was kind of labeled a transient guy. Hey, you're the San Francisco CMU guy. And I wasn't really making friends with the natives and I was, but I was becoming a native. And so I started throwing these barbecues uh, at my apartment in Shadyside and these barbecues got bigger and bigger and bigger. Um, and we started raising money initially for pancreatic cancer research. And then we used all the proceeds to have a citywide business plan competition. And there was this, this energy where all these other young people wanted to meet other young people. So, the barbecues went from 20 people in my parking lot to shutting down full city blocks, and they were over 1,000 people at these barbecues. And we were getting all this press. We would give away $5,000 from the proceeds from the barbecue, and we got great press. And somebody, one of the persons in the foundation community, said, What are you trying to do? I said, Look, we don't have a, we don't have a premier music festival here. I'm trying to support local entrepreneurship. There's so much here that we could be doing. So he offered to help get us started and formalize and create a nonprofit for everything. So I helped recruit Bobby to become the CEO. I've been chairman of the board for the last five years. And the goal was really, okay, let's help some really hungry, thirsty, early stage entrepreneurs. Let's give them some support. Now we also have this co-working space. Let's build out Thrival. So let's have two tracks. Let's build out, awesome music let's go party let's go have some fun and then let's go have this awesome content related to innovation and really kind of mirroring the two and that make it kind of cool and unique so 5 years later Bobby Dan Steven Kenny Jenny they've done an amazing job and they have become pillars in the innovation ecosystem here in Pittsburgh they're they're doing a great job it was I think they have absolutely proven that another organization like Ascender was needed that the that the community was craving something else and these entrepreneurs needed somebody like them and they they have filled that so we have about 100 seats in the co-working space in East Liberty they're all full more and more entrepreneurs want to work with that with the team thrivals growing i mean we on the innovation side and on the music side. I mean, overall it's, it's going really well. It's been, it's been a a great journey for the last five years. I'm, I don't take any credit because I'm not there day to day. I'm a volunteer that's just on the board, but it's been really impressive to see it grow and and have a huge impact on the region.
1: Awesome. I mean, it's been a lot of fun. I've gone to the last three and uh, was definitely inspired by the innovation side for sure with a lot of the stuff that I'm doing now. But, um, Thank you so much for giving us so much time today. Uh, I want to ask the last two questions and let you get back sure. to work here. But if people want to learn more about you, learn more about all the amazing stuff you're working on, what digital coordinates should we be directing people towards? I'm, I'm not, I'm not great with all that stuff, frankly.
0: I mean, I have, I'm on LinkedIn, I'm on Twitter, but I, I, I don't really use it that much. Honestly, I'm a big email guy. If, if folks really want to get in front of me, they can email me. Um, you know, happy to always connect with new people. You know, they can obviously follow the company on LinkedIn, on on Twitter, on Facebook. Um, all of our tags are usually niche social. But yeah, I'm always I'm always trying to push push Pittsburgh forward. But I don't have like some super like you know, really high frequency social media handle or anything like that myself.
1: Sure. Well at the very least they can be using niche yeah, for absolutely some some I mean, big life
0: decisions. Fifty million unique visitors last year, uh, 10 million visits in March alone, traffic still growing
1: over 65% right now. So we're cranking right now. Wow. There's some good numbers. Yeah. Awesome. Well, we'll be sure to link all of that in the show notes for this episode. Uh, but Luke, as we do at the end of each episode, I want to give you the mic one final time to issue a challenge for the audience.
0: I I guess, uh, I guess I would say that if, if this is for, you're saying to entrepreneurs or to who?
1: Um, a lot of people who listen are entrepreneurial, uh, skew younger, but you know, some people are artists, some people are writers, some people are nonprofit space. Okay. I I would say that don't do what I'm
0: saying to do just to get, but I think the more you give back, the more you do naturally get in, in return. And I've always been very excited to have an active, to be active in our community to be involved in nonprofits, I, I would encourage the audience to really think about finding a way to have an impact in a meaningful way, that 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 supports the community. So I've been a volunteer big I had been a I'm not any any today, but I was a volunteer Big Brother for eight years. I was on the board of directors at Big Brothers Big Sisters. I've been a trustee at Carnegie Mellon for ten years. I was on the board for Sprout Fund. I've been chairman of the board for Ascender. We now have a volunteer day at niche. We shut the whole company down. We go volunteer at a local nonprofit. We're in year four of that. This year is with tree Pittsburgh. Um, That's on May 7th. We're helping out in Homewood this year. Uh, Last year was global links. Um, We've done Pittsburgh Parks conservancy. I I think it's really important to find something that you care about that you're passionate about. But I, I think, I think getting engaged in some capacity in the nonprofit world as a volunteer, as a board member, I think is really important. we have some really amazing nonprofits here in Pittsburgh. We're very fortunate to have such an amazing foundation community that has supported a lot of fantastic nonprofits. So I, I think there's some great nonprofits to get involved with. And you expand your, your knowledge, your network. I would encourage you to, to try to find something that
1: you're, you're into absolutely for people outside the region that's one of the things they don't realize pittsburgh's pretty unparalleled in um audrey Rousseau spoke about how that led to her next professional opportunity through being on boards and ryan gaiman called it the silicon valley of nonprofits. so it's right on right on brand with some of the interviews we've been doing thank you so much again for doing the podcast thank you we just went deep with luke Skirman. hope if not there has a fantastic day Hey, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Going Deep with Aaron Watson. Please hit that subscribe button if you've not already done so. And also get excited. We are less than a year away from the Going Deep Summit 2.0. We've announced our first speaker, Mike Dariano, who has been on the show many times talking about books, reading, and assimilating knowledge from great resources. He's going to be giving a killer keynote at the Going Deep Summit 2.0, which is March 23rd, 2019, so mark your calendars now and get your tickets before they go up in price. More information can be found at goingdeepwithaaron.com/event. Thanks for listening. Connect with Aaron on Twitter and Instagram at AaronWatson59.